here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. We're really excited to announce that Carly and Cece will be regulars on the show now, no longer guests, but regular hosts on every week's episode. And as such, we are doing something to celebrate. So in order to celebrate Carly and Cece joining the podcast as co-host, we are going to do a giveaway. Once we reach 100 reviews on the Apple podcast platform on the US site, we will open a giveaway and randomly choose three people and Bianca, Cece and Carly will each do a 50 page critique and a 15 minute Zoom. Hello, Carly and Cece, longtime writer, 
first-time Twitter user. I just started following agents on social media and researching the business side of writing. I happened to come across Carly's tweet about this podcast and decided to push my introverted self out into the world. So here I am. The Port of Old John is a 109,000 word novel that explores the magic and beauty found in storytelling. For it is only through stories that we get a glimpse into the infinite and come close to the heart of the mystery, the driving force behind life's complicated machine. Wild and unusual circumstances caused two babies to be switched at birth in 1950s America. One misplaced child navigates through the changing landscape of the tumultuous 60s, the other resides in the port of Old John and is raised by the peculiar Segano known for their outlandish tales. Growing up in opposite worlds, their lives are forever connected by the intense longing for a home they've never known. The port of Old John has the vivid imagination of Daniel Wallace's Big Fish, the historical humor of Winston Groom's Forrest Gump and the poetic touch of Colson McCullough's The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Even though magical realism and literary fiction may not be at the top of your current wish lists, I believe that the novel's wittiness, unique voice and interesting characters will be enough to pique your interest. At this point, I'm sure you're eager to hear more about me. I am a teacher, aspiring novelist, part-time musician, full-time poet, and Game of Thrones minus last season junkie. I have previously self-published one novel, The New Punk, under a million copies sold worldwide. It's a whimsical and humorous YA adventure about an orphanage in Detroit where the orphans sabotage adoption. Born and raised in the Mitten, I have spent the last 10 years traveling the US and abroad. I'm currently social distancing, wearing a mask, and working on the craft in Doha, Qatar. Thank you for for your time and consideration. I look forward to hearing back from you. Zev. P.S. CC, I apologize for the traumatizing dog experience in the first chapter. Okay, Carly, let's dive into our first query letter. So this one, I, I felt like, first of all, we didn't name a category. So they say the Portable John is a 109,000 word novel that explores magic and beauty found in storytelling. So storytelling isn't a genre, like storytelling is what all writers do. So I just didn't, I thought at that point it should have been explores the magic beauty found in this literary magical realism novel. So like that's where the genre should have went. Um, and then the next line I thought should have been cut uh, for it's only through stories we get a glimpse into the infinite and come closer to the heart of mystery driving force between life's complicated machine. To me, that was just like a literary writer exercising their muscles, kind of showing us how, how literary they are. Beautiful line, but just doesn't really have a place in a query letter to me. And then the next uh, comment I had was just about the actual port of Old John. I did not know where this was globally. Like I just couldn't place, I mean, port obviously means we're on a coast somewhere, but I just had no idea actually like where this port was and where the city was. So I just kind of wanted a little bit more uh, grounding because it said, you know, two babies switched at birth in the 50s in America. And then, I don't know, I just, I couldn't figure out where in America this port was. I just, you know, I don't know every port in America. <laughs> so I just needed a little bit of, of context there. And I found that for the sake of the podcast, I didn't really mind that it was a bit of a casual language, but I just wanted to give one line that I thought probably should have been cut for an actual query. Um, it says, at this point, I'm sure you're eager to hear more about me. So that line, you know, again, I think it was just because trying to be a little bit casual for the point of the, the podcast, but I would just cut that line. We don't need that. My last uh, note that I made here was about their self-published novel. So they said, I've previously self-published novel, The New Punk, under a million copies sold. 
So I was thinking like, are we a lot under a million copies sold? Are we like a little bit under a million copies sold? <laughs> under a million copies sold uh, could mean many, many, many things. So did we sell 10 copies or did we sign, you know, sell 999,000? So anyway, I, I would just like to know how close we are to that million mark or just round up. I mean, once you sold that many copies, I mean, you, you sold a million copies. I got the sense there that they were being facetious. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought okay. that was sarcasm or being facetious. So, uh, it shows that the tone in terms of these things is so difficult to to determine. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it did have that kind of funny tone. To, like, I did laugh in my head. I'm like, how under are we? Right? I did laugh. But <laughs> as an agent, I care how many copies that is. Yeah. All right. So, Cece, would you like to tell us what you thought? Yeah, I agree that I would. I think it's important to include the genre. Second paragraph, I would actually edit the sentence to be the Portable John is a 109,000 word novel. And then I would delete everything that comes after that until machine. So it's essentially two sentences, um, almost two full sentences, only because it's important that we understand the plot before we understand what the story explores. And like, it's, I like that it explores the magic and beauty found in storytelling, but you don't need that in the query letter. It's just taking up space. The query letter should preferably be short and sweet and, you know, just get into the plot, get into the sentence that says, wild and unusual circumstances caused two babies to be switched. And then in the next paragraph, um, we have three comps, which is great. And one, one note that I would suggest, and it's totally a personal suggestion, but it's one that I find makes your query letter better, is try not to include three comps with all three books written by men. Um, this is 2021, like include at least one book written by a woman or a non-binary person. I think that's really important. And there's also a line that says, even though magical realism and literary fiction may not be at the top of your current wish list, and I just want to say, for the record, it's absolutely at the top of my wish list. Love magical realism. Actually, in, in Latin America, it's not even like a genre. It's just how stories are told. Like, all not all stories, but like traditionally, historically, regular stories, I guess. I don't know if regular is the word, have magical realism in it. So it's it's something that I love. Yeah, I had the same note also on the under a million copies sold. Like, which I, I get if it's, again, and like, I, I like sarcasm very much. I like dry wit. but. I do think that the best place for that isn't the query letter only because you never know how it's going to, like, we can't hear your tone, right? Like we're not chatting with you. So I, my, my advice is to be as, I don't want to say boring, cause that's not the word, but as, as, as objective as possible and leave that great humor for when you chat with the agent on the phone. Cause, cause that's the time to, that's the time for that. Cece, would you like to begin since you were apologized to in the query letter? Absolutely. I was apologized to. I appreciate the warning. So my note for this is, is this. The premise of two babies who were switched at birth is very a very interesting one. I like stories centered around families. I like stories with high stakes. I also really like stories that explore issues of identity and belonging. And when you're switched at birth, like that's such a great trigger for all of these themes. That being said, I absolutely cannot handle animal cruelty, especially in fiction, because in fiction you get to make things up. And so it's a choice. It's an intentional choice. So this isn't for me. My two cents for the reader who has not listen to this, essentially both a raccoon and a dog get really, really hurt in order to, and that's the inciting incident. Sorry. Well, that's the thing that leads the two babies to get switched. And my two cents is pick a different reason for the babies to get switched. You do not need to bring innocent fur babies into it. It is not my story. It is yours, but a lot of people 
I think, won't want to read this. So unless it's really important, I would just say pick something else. Kali? I had a pretty strong visceral reaction to this as well. I felt like I wanted to know more about the mothers (laughs) because this is about babies being switched at birth. And I just felt like the mothers were a vessel and not treated as humans necessarily. I mean, we were so focused on, okay, the babies are getting switched. This doctor kind of almost a caricature of a doctor, I guess I would say, you know, smoking while performing an episiotomy and a forceps delivery, chain smoking, no mention of the actual, you know, woman as a being was, you know, upsetting to me as a reader, as a mom who has had two births. You know, I just felt like the mother being so out of this storyline was so bizarre to me and then to have the animals as essentially primary characters over the human beings was really like visceral to me as as a reader in a way that made me feel uncomfortable and it is humorous and if it's supposed to be lighthearted, like it's not a joke to me so again I think I might just not be the ideal reader for this book yeah I just I was really interested in what was going to happen to these moms it was like okay the doctor calls out to the nurse scalpel forceps cigarettes And then we get into this huge kerfuffle about animals. And I'm like, is the mom bleeding out on the table? Like, like what is going on? So I just like couldn't read the animal stuff. I'm like, what's happened to the mom? Like, anyway, so I was a little bit worked up about that. Uh, So again, probably not my story. But when you're talking about, again, children switched at birth, you know, the birth is an essential element of this story and getting so far into like satire or humor or magical realism or whatever we want to call it. Um, away from the actual birth just felt like we were getting away from the point of the hook. That was my take. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. All right, let's move on to our next one, which is Rules for Revolutionaries. Dear Miss Waters, I'm pleased to offer my novel Rules for Revolutionaries, 96,000 words, for your consideration. When I saw your request on MSWL for adult fiction set during the French Revolution, I thought my story might interest you. It's set during the final throes of the revolution that began in 1789 and is a period unrepresented in fiction, perhaps because it lacked the glamour of the guillotine. French aristocrat Genevieve wants to be a great artist, but her best work is witty, irreverent caricature. In 1870, Paris is the place to study serious art, but the city is rife with revolutionary fervour and Genevieve knows her kind does not fare well when the city is riled. Undaunted, she gives up her wealth and changes her name to go incognito, only to find that becoming an artist is not as easy as she thought. Nevertheless, when Paris is besieged, she stays and embraces La Vie Bohème. Teaching at the girls' school of notorious rebel Louise Michel, Genevieve experiences firsthand the injustices suffered by the people of Paris, and she joins their fight. She begins an affair with revolutionary Dominic, who invites her to draw anonymously for his seditious newspaper. Her political cartoons are popular, but caricature is against the law. As Paris falls into the chaos of another revolution, Genevieve's identities as an aristocrat and as Le Caricaturist are revealed, and both sides believe her to be a traitor. She must choose between the safety of her aristocratic world or the freedom of the world of the revolutionaries. The story is told with a comedic slant and a strong voice, similar to that of Catherine in Hulu's The Great. It will appear to readers of historical women's fiction set in a turbulent political environment, like The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. Residing in London, Ontario, I'm a writer of many short stories, two novels, and several story beginnings, which I can't wait to develop. Thanks for your consideration, 
Teresa. Carly, would you like to begin with that query letter? Absolutely. I am thrilled to talk about this one. I really, really, really liked this. As mentioned, it was directed to me. um, And as mentioned, it says, when I saw your hashtag MSWL, which stands for Manuscript Wishlist um, for Adult Fiction set during the French Revolution, I thought my story might interest you. It absolutely does. You you hit a home run. I'm I'm the, the agent and the woman for you. So this is a classic example where I just kind of want to like put the reader or put the listener, sorry, in my head for a second here. So when I read a query that has a great title, Rules for the Revolutionaries, great title, you know, appropriate word count, 96,000 words, mentions my manuscript wish list, mentions this something that I'm interested in. I actually don't finish the whole query because I'm going to request it. And I know that. So all of a sudden what I do is my eyes just skirt down to the bottom <laughs> So, and then I, I see the comps again, I, as you guys know, if you were longtime listeners of the podcast, I actually like comps at the top, but so I'm, my eyes immediately scroll down to the bottom of the page. And so now I'm at the comps. So the comps are uh, similar to Catherine in Hulu's The Great. That show is hilarious and so good. And then also a comp is The Nightingale, you know, a great comp, probably too common of a comp, um, but, but still a great comp. So right away, my hopes are pretty high because if you've seen The Great or you know anything about it, it is so modern and satirical and self-aware. So if you're going to comp a um, historical or one of those kind of, you know, period dramas, whatever you want to call it, comping, like choosing The Great to comp is so interesting to me because, and it was nominated, I think, for some Emmys because it's really extraordinary in the way that it's so modern anyway so right away you know I'm very excited and then she she mentions or I guess I shouldn't say she um but the the author mentions where they are from and they say London Ontario and I actually grew up right outside of London Ontario so right away I'm feeling like a nice kinship to the author I like the comps I like the topic and then I go back and read the middle paragraph (laughs) because you know you've already sold me I'm already requesting it now I'm like okay maybe I should see what I'm requesting so now I'm going back up and, and getting some details and, uh, and yeah, I'm overall, you know, pretty excited about this and uh, it's definitely for me. Wonderful. Cece, what would you like to add to that? So I just want to echo everything Carly said. This is a very well-written query letter. I know exactly what the story is going to be about. I have a sense of the tone. I, I really enjoy humor, especially when it's like dry witty humor. So when, when she calmed to the great, I was like, oh, I wonder how she's going to do this. And, and I won't get ahead of myself, but we've read the pages already and and all I can say is that it's really good too. Yeah, it's it's a great query letter. I, I think you absolutely did a great job. Wonderful. Carly, would you like to dive into those opening pages for us? Did they meet your expectations? Dun, dun, dun. Yes, Bianca, they did. Um, my only kind of small note was that we know through the query letter that it's historical, but if somebody was coming to the pages cold, they might not know that off the top. So I would say adding the year at the top. So it says the chapter is called The Cottage. So I would just say, you know, The Cottage, year. She gets into the the year and the second paragraph. So we know it's 1870, but I would just pop that up there just to make it a little bit more clear for the reader. But right away, because I was, I was kind of like, I'm like, where is the snark? You know, where's the tone going to come into this? Because it's pitched as the great. And right away, I was so pleased to see in the first paragraph, there's a line, you know, this first, the character talking about learning the craft of a painting and art and that sort of thing and her mentor and her teacher. And she, uh, and she says, I wanted to think that he was full of shit, but he studied in Paris and I had not. 
I turned the charcoal over and started on the linen weave of the man's shirt, but I did not enjoy it. So right away, it's like, it gets that element of the great. Again, if you've seen that show where it feels modern, but also historical, which is so great for the modern reader. Like as an agent, I'm thinking like, can I sell this? Who's it for? Who's going to read it? And so I liked that we were bringing that kind of more modern element to it, which gives it a bit of a hook in itself. So I thought that was great. thought the tone was lovely. Yeah, it was really good. Another line that I liked on the uh, on the first page was they were talking about the studio, the artist studio, how it's on the other side of a small lake from the estate. And it says it could be reached over land, but it was a long way from the road. So usually I said that I was going to go for a paddle. My mother drowned in the lake when I was four years old. But in the intervening 20 years, no one ever tried to stop me rowing out alone. And I was not inclined to complain. So that was just so well done to kind of explain like, you know, what is the state of women at this time? The value that they place on women in this time tells us also about her mother in a very interesting way. So really extremely skilled piece of writing there that I that I wanted to applaud. I thought that was great. Other than that, I don't really have any main notes. Um, you know, towards the end of the sample, um, a strange man appears in her cottage looking for directions. We don't know whether to believe him. And then she's kind of deciding what to do and, and you know, take out her weapon and that sort of thing. So all in all, very interesting, compelling things are happening. We're learning a lot. And right away, we really like her because she's a a scrappy woman that nobody cares about. And as the reader, we are already really excited and and want to care for her. Wonderful. So so are these pages, is this a manuscript you requested, Carly? Well, absolutely. And I was about to wait and to see what CC says. And I'm going to rock, paper, scissor hers, I think, uh, you know, at the end here. And we can tell the listeners uh, what happened. (laughs) Awesome. Cece? I am very sad that these pages were addressed to Carly. I I mean, I'm very happy for the author because she's a great agent, but I mean, I loved this so much. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. A writer is an entertainer who doesn't get to see her audience. What I mean by that is if you were putting on a performance on a stage, you would get to see your audience's reaction in real time right? As writers, even though you might read a review by a reader, the reader has had time to think about it and then write a review. And I think that, you know, one thing that I like to do as an agent with my my creators is I offer them line notes of my impressions as I was reading something. And I don't edit. I am brutally honest. And I just share everything that, that, that occurred to me. So because this is so well written, this is what I will do because I have embarrassing little actual like critical notes for this. So like, okay, first page, the first line that starts with the hollow scratch of the charcoal. I just want to say this is a beautiful first line. And then right away, Carly mentioned this. The writer says, I wanted to think he was full of shit, but he'd studied in Paris and I had not. That's so humorous, so funny. The writer really nailed the tone and it's absolutely great. Last paragraph on the first page. One thing that occurred to me, because she mentioned um, she was 20. I'm like, okay, wait a second. If, If this is 1870 and she's 20, that means she's like super old right? For the time. Why isn't her family pressuring her to get married? Like she's basically a spinster. And if she's an aristocrat, like the aristocracy see marriage as merger, right? And then immediately the next paragraph answers my question, which is the sign of a very skilled writer, because you're you're supposed to be making the reader ask certain questions and then seamlessly answering these questions. So next paragraph tells me about the, the Bordeaux family and tells me about her reputation and then tells me why her father indulges her in her art and how she sort of like finds a way around that to work on the stuff she loves, which which are her caricatures. And then again, end of that page, I what I was thinking was, and I, what I wrote was, I love that she draws as an act of defiance. Art can be a powerful tool of resistance and change. So these are great themes. 
So right away, I know who the main character is. I understand her personality. I'm feeling for her. I'm rooting for her. I'm getting a little bit a sense of her family. I'm getting a sense of, of, of her political views. Following page is when I have my only note. And it's such a small thing, but I'll share it anyway. The main character is painting and a voice cuts through the flow of her thoughts. And it's beautifully written. She says, like a misplaced note in my favorite melody. Okay. And then there's a hello, he said, opening the door instead of knocking like a civilized person. And then we get sharp descriptions of him. He was dressed in an old tweed suit, so faded by washing and wearing that it was difficult to determine the original color. Talks about his cuffs. She mentions that he might be a Spaniard or perhaps a Russian. So perfect description. However, the next line she goes, startled, I knocked over my stool in my haste to get my feet under me. What I would suggest is flipping these things. Remember, as readers, we want to feel that we almost are the character, right? Especially since this is first person. So hello, he said, and then we see her startled. And then after she sort of composes herself after this, you know, the, the, the fear, perhaps, perhaps fear is a bit much, but after she's no longer that startled, then we can have the humorous comment about him not knocking like a syphilis person and the descriptions. Otherwise, I felt a little removed from the page, right? Because I was like, okay, so I'm, I'm, she's, I'm getting this serene description because it's so sharply observant. And then she's startled. That makes no sense. She would first be startled and then she would, oh, okay, hold on. Who's, who's in front of me? And then she would describe him for us. But yeah, that's my only note. It's embarrassingly little. I would have kept on reading if there was more. It's so, so good. Brava. And this is as well a really good example of how character is brought to life in terms of the way they observe things. So she's an artist. Of course, she's going to pay attention to things like this. Whereas somebody like me, honestly, I will go out to dinner with people the whole night. And at the end of it, I won't know who was wearing what, what jewelry they were wearing. They could have worn the same clothes every time I've seen them. I wouldn't have noticed that. But an artist is someone who takes these kinds of things in. And this is another way of making character truly come alive by pointing out the things that they pay attention to, the things that catch their eye, etc., because it just makes that character so much more authentic. Carly, was there anything else you wanted to add to that? If this query had been directed to both of you, I think there, there may have been a, a fight to see. Oh, there would have been a Shark Tank moment again. Yeah, Abs yeah, absolutely. I was waiting to see what <laughs> Cece's reaction to it was, but uh, I should know Cece has good taste. Um, you know, I'll give her, I'll give her some credit. You know, she she has good taste. So uh, so yeah, I knew that she would also be interested in this one. So this would be a very high on my list to request project again, as I said, because I think that it gives something a little bit different. Also with the um, with the kind of rise of Bridgerton being really popular. Like I do feel like something like this is very high on people's wish lists. Again, the hook I think is not necessarily in the fact that this is an artist during the French Revolution. I think the hook is the voice and what's going to set it apart. Just like the great is, you know, the TV show. What, what sets it apart is the tone. Absolutely. I will look forward to reading the full manuscript. Wonderful. And this is our ninth books with hook segment. And it's the second time that the manuscript has been requested. And I feel like that is quite quite indicative of how things work in the real world of agenting, because you will see a ton of manuscripts, but only request a very small percentage of them. So I feel like our little microcosmic world we've created is mirroring the, the macro world there as well. Okay, so let's move on from this. Dear Books with Hooks, 
I'm new to the world of writing podcasts, but I think I found my new soundtrack to making coffee in the morning. I decided to reach out after listening to the first Books with Hooks segment and thought it was a great opportunity to get some expert advice. Sam and Ashley Weber need to accept that their parents will die one day, and if their mom's dementia or dad's heart attack or any indication, that day might come sooner than they think. Greg and Mary, the parents, are forced to confront their own degrading health issues after it costs them both their jobs. Mary finds herself drawn to a specific place, and as strangers inexplicably tell her, she just needs to figure out where that is. Sam and Ashley must set aside their problems if they want to find a way to help their mother create one last salient memory while it's still possible. Greg and Mary watch their meager savings dwindle while she tries to figure out what the strange compulsion actually means. The Weebers can no longer ignore their collectively avoided internal issues while the sun burns out, flocks of birds fall dead from the sky, and buildings full of people disappear in an instant. Title Redacted is a magical realist fiction novel complete at 88,000 words. My novel will interest fans of The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin and Goodbye Vitamin by Rachel Kong. I earned a BFA from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where I majored in creative writing and minored in journalism. I've had fiction published in the Emerson Review, the Feathertail Review, Hypertext Magazine, and elsewhere. I've had non-fiction freelance work published worldwide in places such as Barista Magazine and Fresh Cup Magazine. This story is inspired by my mother's battle with Alzheimer's disease. I've included the first five pages as requested. Thank you for your time and consideration. Name redacted. I was really intrigued by the premise of this one, but let's start with the query letter. So my note would be to condense paragraphs two through five into one paragraph about the story. Listeners have have gotten to know what the query letter says. So essentially, here's what I would suggest to the writer. You don't need most of the stuff in paragraphs two, three, four, and five. What you need is one line about the parents' troubles. Start with the parents. Don't start with the children because the book starts with the mother. One line about the siblings needing to put their problems aside to take care of their parents. And then one line about how as internal issues mount, strange things start to happen in the external world, which I guess is the magical realism aspect. The fact that, you know, what's on the outside starts becoming as weird as what on the inside. Yeah, because there's just a lot of information. Not a lot of it is needed. You know, as an example, I hear that Sam and Ashley, these are the children, they're, there's a, they're adults, I'm sure, but, but, but you know, the children as in the children of these two people need to accept their parents are going to die one day. And then in, in the nine, then in the next paragraph, and the one after that, I hear that Sam and Ashley must, must set their problems aside. So, so that's confusing to me, the back and forth, just condense it and you will have a absolutely great paragraph with a really interesting premise. would also like to say that I love both of these comps. I binge read The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin. So like absolutely great job with the comps. And, you know, as a final note, there's, there's a line about what inspired the story. And I love that. I, it's my favorite. Whenever I have an author call, my first question is always, what inspired you to write this? Because I care so much, not in the sense that it's going to decide whether I want to represent someone or not, but in the sense that I'm so curious, right? Like your agent is your first fan and your fans want to know why, what, what made you write this? So, so I loved it so much. I thought it was great. Yeah, that's, that's my note. I'm trying desperately to get Rachel onto the show so I can interview her because Goodbye Vitamins, like one of my all-time favorite books. And I would love to, to chat to her, but I figure there's only so, so much social media stalking one can do before 
before one becomes creepy. So, um, Rachel, if you are listening, we would love to have you on the show. Okay, Carly, what did you think? I agree with Cece's analysis. I felt like this is so interesting and has so much potential that I would probably just recommend rewriting the query. I mean, I just feel like there is so much potential here and we're just like tucking it away in odd corners. And so that just became confusing to me. I also felt like we're naming four characters in a query and that's a lot of characters to name. So I thought that was a little bit confusing to me. Uh, And the repetition, like every body paragraph starts with a name. So it's Sam and Ashley, then the next paragraph, Greg and Mary, and then the next one, Sam and Ashley. So it felt very synopsis-like to me. And um, then the last one says the Webbers, you know? So like everything is based around these names. I don't know. I would just vary up the paragraph structures. Try to just, yeah. I mean, I say this with a complete love and respect is just maybe Trish try to write it again because I, I think it's great. I think like the actual hook and the topic are very interesting. And the concept that our parents will die one day, like all of this, very, very interesting. So I would just try to figure out a way to kind of rewrite it in a way that um, really focuses on what the actual hook of the book is. Middle paragraph, a little bit about the actual, you know, inciting incident, climax, denouement, and then again the comps. I'm a huge fan of having the comps at the at the top, so I think that that would be my recommended structure. But overall, I think you would get lots of requests just based on you know the concept alone because I think it's very strong. Carly, would you like to dive into those first pages? Okay, so with the pages, I'm going to talk structural just for a second here. The character talks about this 36 years a lot. So there's, you know, 36 years. I wasn't clear on at the beginning what the emphasis was on 36 years because at first it seems like, oh, is the high school itself 36 years or is the mother character 36 years old? And then again, you know, even after 36 years, Mary, I'm like, okay, well then it's Mary that's 36 years old. So I just couldn't really figure out what the relevance of 36 was other than that being how old she was. So that was a little bit confusing. Overall, I thought it was a very strong kind of, inciting incident because this is a teacher character something happens to the students uh, or one of the students um you know some sort of injury so so overall there there is a nice hook to it i wasn't convinced that we were in the right point of view you know we're in a third person here i think that maybe first person would possibly be better especially because we ha- i don't know if we're going to follow the point of view of all four characters throughout the whole novel I'm getting the sense that we are because the first section that we read is, is, you know, called Mary goes dark. So it's about Mary. And especially if you're going to write multi POV and make them sound distinct enough, having them in first point, each separately in first point of view would show us how different each section is. If it is going to be third point of view, it might seem a little bit like smoother overall if the point of the novel is to make it seem more cohesive in terms of like themes and being omniscient. But I don't know. I I think this could have been benefit or at least playing around with the idea of first person. Awesome. Cece, what did you think? So I had the exact same note as Carly regarding the 36 years and having read like all the pages, I understand, I think I understand what the writer meant, right? Like I think the intention was to create a circle back moment because at the end of these pages, she gets fired after 36 years of teaching. But I would just clarify this, right? Like at the end of the first paragraph, right, even after 36 years of being a teacher or teaching at this high school, it just, I 
think makes it more clear. Lack of clarity should always be intentional. Never make your reader feel confused unless they're supposed to feel confused. So that's that's my, my note um, to echo Carly's. And then the second paragraph. So here's what's happening um, so the listeners can understand. Teacher's in the classroom and there's uh, a young man, I guess a teenager. His name is William, William Gray, and he's picking on another boy. We don't know what the name of this other boy is in this first page yet. But later on, we find find out that it's Bryce. I wish we'd seen. So we observed the teacher, that's her name is Mary, pull William out of the class for picking on his classmate. We get to see Mary observing William really closely. And, you know, as Bianca mentioned, and this is really true, characters are brought to life by the way they observe things. So this is a teacher observing a student. So this is great. And then we get lots and lots of, of, of lines about William. You know, later we listen to Mary talk about how students like William need extra attention. You know, what I'm thinking about, and this says a lot about the reader, is we don't see her looking at Bryce. I have no idea what William even did to Bryce exactly. I have certainly have no idea how Bryce reacted. Was he hurt? Was he angry? Did he look to, to Mary for, for help? Was he trying to, you know, hide? I don't know what, what exactly happened. And as a teacher, I think she would look at both. Like all the teachers I know, sure, they, they make sure to, you know, stop whatever's going on, whatever's not supposed to be happening. And they'll pull a student aside. That makes a lot of sense. But they also look at the student who was picked on. So I think that level of empathy would make sense with her character. She's been teaching for 36 years at a high school. She has lots of opinions on, on kids. And, and, and there's a great line. I, I don't have it right in front of me, but it's a great line that says something like, you know, everything changes, clothes change, et cetera, et cetera. But the students stay, stay the same, which, which is great. So I think this is atmospheric. I think this is eerie. There's so many lines that I was highlighting saying, oh my gosh, I love this. Like how observant she is. It's, it's, it's well-written. But yeah, I would just add that, that, that bit of empathy layering to it. And I also had, it had not occurred to me, but now that Carly mentioned the POV, 100% agree. There was something that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And then as soon as I heard it, I was like, yep, that, that makes sense. I don't, I don't think this is necessarily the right POV. I don't know, play around with it a little. You know, a note that I think really helps authors is get a chapter. It could be your first chapter. In this case, I think it makes sense. And then write it again, but but completely change the POV. Go, Go from third person to first person or to second person. Like really play around with the point of view. If it sounds like a lot of work, it's because it is, but it's so worth it because it will either confirm that you're on the right point of view or it will give you insight into something that could make your story even stronger. In terms of if the story was going to be told from four different points of view, how difficult do you think it is to pull off first person point of view for four different characters to make all of them sound super distinct? It would be difficult. I agree. Definitely a challenge. Not impossible. Syracuse by Delia Efron, four points of view, two couples, all first person masterfully done. So maybe read Syracuse, I'm just saying. Yeah, it's definitely a skill, but to pull this off in third person is also going to be a skill. You know what I mean? So I think it's just that the book and the way that it kind of has evolved, um, it, it's going to be tough either way. So I would entertain the idea first just to see if it's possible. And my advice there is once you've changed a point of view to first person, and remember changing a point of view from third person to first person is not just changing, you know, the pronouns. It's not just you know, she becomes I. Remember when you inhabit a character, all the things they pay attention to, their language, all of that's going to change. And the wonderful, wonderful thing about doing this exercise is that if you then decide to go back to third person, it's going to be third person super, super close once you change it back from 
uh, first person. And so maybe first person may not be what you're going for, but then it'll allow you to have uh, alternating points of view where each time you zoom in really, really close in terms of the third person, which brings the reader that much closer to the character as well. So definitely something worth trying. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you what writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. 
Just a reminder of a few things that we've got coming up. Carly's teaching a session called How to Write a Nonfiction Proposal That Sells. That's on the 29th of April at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Zoom. Go to her Instagram page for the link in the bio to register. Cece also has a webinar coming up on the 20th of May at 8 p.m. Eastern Time called From Memories to Memoir, Turning Your Life's Journey into a book. If you'd like to sign up for that, please go to her Instagram page and you'll find the link in her bio. I have a few courses coming up as well. Visit my website at biancamaray.com to take a look. Today's guest is the author of the novel Sid Sanford Lives and the short story collection Black Coffee. He's also the co-founder of Writer's Bone, a literary podcast and website that champions aspiring and established authors. It's my pleasure to welcome Daniel Ford. Daniel, it's so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. I feel like we've come full circle. So I remember in 2017 when my first novel came out, I think yours was the very first podcast interview that I ever did. Do you remember that? I think you're right. Uh, I remember you saying something at the end that you were really nervous and you're like, oh my God, did I screw anything up? And I was like, no, you were absolutely delightful. Well, that doesn't sound like me, but I'll take it. And I, I remember at the time being like, what is this podcast tomfoolery? Like, what is this stuff? Because I never used to listen to podcasts then. Uh, and suddenly, you know, my publicist was like, you need to do podcast interviews. And then I spoke to you again in 2019 and here we are and I get to pick your brain, which is really, really awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of weird being on the other end of this where I don't have the questions uh, and I'm the one doing the answering. This uh, this could go off the rails real quick. Absolutely. The minute you start firing off questions at me, we know it's gone off the rails and I'm going to have to <laughs> pull, back, pull back the reins again. So before we dive into some of the things that I wanted to chat with you specifically today, because you get to speak to a lot of authors. And I've said before on the podcast that authors are my rock stars. I fangirl hard with authors. I mean, I could see some famous actor on the streets and I'm like, meh, and put me, you know, in a restaurant and next to Michael Andauchi and I'm going to be screaming in my head the whole time. And, and so you get to do this all the time and you've done it for a long time. So could you tell us a bit about The Writer's Bone and the other podcasts that you do and how they came about? Yeah, absolutely. So Writer's Bone came about uh, me and Sean Tui, my podcast partner originally, uh, you know, we had just moved to Boston. We were uh, both writers, both both looking for a creative outlet. We were both working at jobs that didn't do a whole lot with writing, uh, at least not on the creative side. And we just wanted a platform. Really, originally, it was just to talk about pop culture and books we liked and just kind of shoot the breeze for a while. And he had the bright idea to say, hey, why don't we interview some of our favorite authors? And it really went from there. And originally, we didn't know anything about sound. We were using $20 microphones from Amazon, which I still have kicking around somewhere because I can't bear to throw them out, even though how terrible they are. So if you go back to our early episodes, basically anything before episode 100, we had no idea what we were doing. And we didn't want to. Like We, just, we were doing it for fun. We were doing it for us. And then it kind of evolved into creating this community that honestly, as both a writer and a human, I could not live without. I really couldn't. Uh, the people that we talk to on a, 
a weekly basis. Uh, you know, it, it used to be where we would email like 20 to 50 people a week, if not a day, uh, some days. Uh, now it's flipped. People come to us and say, hey, we want our authors to, to come on the show. And God, what a what a blessing that is when uh, when free books and uh, ARC show up in my my house. It's it's always like I can't wait to dig into this, no matter what it is. It could be a genre that I don't know about or not something that I solicited. And it's like I want to talk to this author. I want to figure out how they did it. And that's kind of our guiding principle here, at Writers Well. And uh, a lot of authors who come on that we talk to say how grateful they are to talk about the craft and not why did this character do this or why didn't you do this and why isn't the book exactly how I want it not how you want it uh, so it's been a it's been a real blessing both on a uh, a writing level and a personal level for me uh, since we started and how many episodes are you in by now because you're talking up until episode one I think this you know I think I'm about on 33 or 34 episodes of of my podcast and that feels like an eternity so how many have have you done so I think on the episode level, so we we really have two shows in one. We have our regular quote regular episodes that it's you know episode X number and then whoever the author is, uh, and we're up to four hundred and seventy three, and they add up quick. So I you had just you just started your podcast and to have thirty three that's that's a lot in a short time. Uh, so I understand that uh, completely. We also have our Friday morning coffee series, which airs every Friday. And we have a different host for that, Kaylin Malqui, who has just been on point the last couple of years, keeping us abreast of all social justice issues and really anything uh, interesting uh, out there in the ether. I just let her do whatever, do whatever research she wants. Uh, and we, I think we're either coming up on 200 of those episodes, if not more. So I think total combined with some special episodes we've done here and there it's probably we're probably close to like 750 maybe a little over that wow that's that's something and you also have the novel class one right could we you tell do. us a bit more about that yeah absolutely so uh that started out as a friday morning coffee segment with me and uh the host dave pezza we just wanted to talk about books from a author's point of view, you know, a writer's point of view. And, you know, we talk about characters and theme and all that, but, uh, you know, we talk a lot about craft and a lot about, uh, you know, the publishing side, what went into it and, you know, any tidbits we find. And we take really deep dives. It's, it's a really, it, it's like your lit class, but with, uh, you know, two white homers who, uh, who just love books. Uh, it's great. And uh, we also have Pop Literacy, which is hosted by uh, Jennifer K. Armstrong and Kimberly Potts, uh, both best-selling authors uh, who are just incredible people. Jennifer actually has a new book out right now called uh, When Women Invented Television, which is fantastic. I mean, would be right up your alley, anyone's alley. Uh, if you love good writing and television, uh, it's just, it's tailor-made. But uh, they just, uh, they, they've turned it into kind of a pop culture book podcast. Uh, so every two weeks, they talk about a book about pop culture that's out in the ether. They just had um, Mark Harris on, who, uh, who wrote a book about Mike Nichols, which uh, is currently on its way to my house, and I can't wait to devour it. Uh, it's ginormous, but uh, I hear it reads like a freight train, uh, so that's great. And uh, last but not least, we have uh, Film Freaks Forever, hosted by Fief Sutton, who uh, has won a couple of Emmys, and his writing partner, Mark Jordan Legan, and uh, they talk about uh, films and they 
typically we'll talk about, you know, five to six films every episode and talk about two writers and two television uh, movie people who know their stuff. They have seen everything. They know everything about uh, movies, actors, actresses, you name it. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. It's uh, one of my favorite podcasts. And I'm not just saying that just because I produce it. And something you said earlier is something that I agree with 100% is you said you don't care what genre it is. The book comes and you're excited to dive in. And this is something I tell my creative writing students all the time is to not be snobbish about their kind of genre because it's easy for writers to get into this groove of, oh, I only read literary fiction. You know, anything else is just, you know, brain candy or what, what's going to rot the brain. But I honestly believe that every genre has got something to teach you, whether it's about tension or about pacing or about characterization or suspense or whatever the case may be is. So I agree with you there and I try and read as, as widely as I can as well. Yeah, it's been a lifelong thing. Uh... Uh, you know, when I, I had two uh, female cousins and I would go over their house all the time and they had books, you know, just on the floor and the bookshelf and it was all Babysitter's Club and V.C. Andrews, who no one should be reading, never mind a teenager. And it, it's gone from there. You know, I grew up on thrillers. I grew up on crime fiction. Uh, so whenever I kind of need to reset, if I'm coming off like a weightier book, I go to uh, someone like a uh, S.A. Cosby who wrote uh, Blacktop Wasteland. And I'm just it just incredible writer, uh, incredible themes. And he just happens to write crime fiction. And it you can't tell me something that he writes or something that, uh, you know, David Joy writes isn't as good as uh, a literary fiction novel that's uh, 900 pounds uh, and 900 pages. Uh, it just, as a writer, you have to read as widely as possible because you learn things about whatever genre you write in and all of those other genres and, you know, people who do it a lot better than you. And that that's the key for me. I'm always looking to get better. And that's why I read so widely. Agree. And uh, in terms of mysteries, thrillers, psychological thrillers, I've always loved those kinds of books since I was a teenager. It was actually the first book I ever remember trying to write. I think I was 19. And I uh, had started, I'd, I'd been reading this really twisty psychological thriller. At that point, they did a lot of serial killers and really getting into the serial killer's mind. And I think the book was by someone called Joseph Glass, which I think turned out to be a pseudonym for another writer, but it was very dark and twisty. And anyway, I tried something similar and made the huge mistake of showing it at that point in time to my then 19-year-old boyfriend who freaked the hell out and said that my mind scared the crap out of him and he thought I needed therapy. Uh, and so I stopped you know, writing that book. But in all the books that I write now, and they are considered book club fiction or upmarket fiction, despite the literary elements, the things that I have so much fun with is planting these red herrings, making my readers look in one direction while I do something else. And then I love it when they think they know what's happening and boom, I hit them with something that they didn't see coming. So, you know, that's how my whole background in, in thrillers has helped me now as a writer. So has, has there been something in your own books that you like to play on? So this is actually actually a moment to to tell us about your own books as well. Yeah, so I uh, I have one novel out called Sid Sanford Lives, uh, and I also have a uh, short story collection out uh, called uh, Black Coffee, both from 5050 Press, an indie publisher out of New York State. And I, uh, it's funny that you said that because uh, 
I, uh, I've been told quite a bit, like, oh my God, you're really dark. Do you go home? Do you like put the curtains like really tight? You know, do you, is everything dark? You know, your desk, you know, whatever. Do you, do you live in the dark? And the, the answer is no one, my wife won't let me. Uh, and I'd like to keep her around for as long as possible. And two, you know, it's just growing up on that crime fiction. Like I love that noir bent and, you know, my, my debut novel, Sid Sanford lives is very much a coming of age novel, but there also happens to be like a murder in it because I could not help myself because that's what I grew up on. And it kind of helped me resolve a bunch of plot things that I couldn't find out a better way to do. And it just, so I, and certainly in black coffee, there are darker stories, but you know, that noir, I love movies that are noir. I love writing that's noir, you know, whether it's tucked into a novel or it's the, the main crux of it, uh, it's just something that I love and will continue to write. And, you know, the current project I'm working on, which, you know, grew out of two short stories in Black Coffee. They're just two characters who uh, had broken up and gotten back together and nothing dark has happened to them yet. Currently, they're just sitting in a bar talking about their past and trying to reconnect with each other. But at some point, like I got to make something weird and dark happen. I just haven't figured it out yet. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely a noir bent to my fiction and will continue to be so. I find it fascinating how the people who write this genre are actually the loveliest people. So I'm thinking now, especially of Jennifer Hillier, who wrote Creep and Jar of Hearts. When I read those books, I was like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> this is super dark. This person must be quite twisted. And then I got to interview her for an event. Actually, I'm hoping to interview her for the podcast as well. And Jennifer has this beautiful, innocent, sweet face. She looks like a, a beauty queen and she's just such a sweet, lovely person. And, uh, you know, she just said that her mind goes to these dark places almost as a way for her to control her anxiety, almost as a parent, because I know a ton of people who are parents who cannot read books in which anything happens to a child. And for me, I can read just about anything except anything happening to an animal. If anything happens to the dog, it's like, forget it. I ain't going to read it. But, you know, she said that that's almost a way of her managing these dark thoughts that parents have about their children, which which was, was super, super interesting. So what I would like to focus on now, Daniel, is firstly, have you got some authors that you've interviewed on the podcast that were really standout discussions for you, either in terms of what you learned from them as a writer or just their work? Which Which ones really stood out for you? So I'll start with a recent one. We recently had Julian Baker on the show, who is a fantastic singer-songwriter. Uh, she has a couple albums out. She has a new album out uh, currently. Uh, and of course, I can't remember the name. It has just fallen out of my head. But as I'm talking, I will remember it. Uh, but just a great album and just been been on my writing, writing playlist for years now. And she was gracious enough to come on our show and since then has been on all the late night shows. She's been on you know a bunch of CBS shows. Uh, she's been everywhere. And uh, it's been a lot of fun to kind of see her gain more of a following outside of the, the indie realm. Uh, but just great to talk to, like really fired me up to talk about writing and when i told her that i was you know she was on my writing playlist she had to like she was answering some other question and she she was like uh i need to stop and go back i'm on your writing playlist 
the hell, man? So she was a ton of fun. You know, that I think that's one of our longer episodes. I think it was like 45 minutes plus, but I could have talked to her for four hours. Uh, and uh, an older one, uh, we talked to Richard Russo a couple times. And for me, he's my favorite author of all time. I mean, there are plenty of authors who I love recently who uh, I couldn't live without, but without Richard Russo, I am not the writer I am today. I mean, my senior English teacher put his book, Nobody's Fool, in my hands as a senior in high school and changed my life, totally changed my life and how I wanted to uh, write. And uh, I'm from a small, smaller town and he writes about small town people in a way that just, uh, God, it just, it just works. And uh, got to meet him briefly at in an event, I believe it was at the Harvard bookstore. I believe they hosted it. And I was waiting in line outside with this older couple and I saw, I saw him coming down and it was a rainy day and he was, you know, coming in. I don't think he was late, but uh, he was coming in before the, before the bigger crowd. And the woman who I was talking to stopped talking to me and was like, Hey buddy, you got to go to the back of the line. We've been waiting here for a while. And I couldn't get out. That's Richard Russo. And he's like, uh, yeah, I'm the author at this event. And she was not impressed. <laughs> she was, she still, was still like, get to the back of the line, man. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I, I could, that could have been me talking to Richard Russo shooting the the breeze like and you you basically gave him the business and told him to get out of his own event but i uh i got to hand him my book uh, later on when uh, i went up for a signed copy of his book so that that was a big thrill and got to thank him for basically making me a writer but some of the other ones you know we had michael imperioli on the show somewhat randomly he had a short story in a larger collection i believe it was called the nicotine chronicles and his i don't know if it was his agent or his literary agent but like hey do you want to interview michael imperioli and i was like yeah, I would love to. Uh, and he was great, had a lot of great insights about not only writing, but acting. Uh, he's a really creative guy and it was nice to pick his brain. Uh, and I would be re- remiss if I didn't mention Min Jin Lee, who wrote Pachinko. And what a lovely, beautiful human being Min Jin Lee is. Just a great literary citizen, a great global citizen. Uh, I would like to spend five minutes just attached to her brain because uh, she's so smart and uh, so dedicated to her craft and social issues. Uh, she's been great. Uh, and also me and my wife interviewed the uh, showrunners for uh, One Day at a Time somewhat recently, uh, Gloria Calderon-Kellett and Mike Royce. And uh, it was just before they got the final announcement that the show was canceled, canceled. Uh, but they were, they were incredible. And the, really uh, our mindset is, it's always, it's fun to look back on this. And I, I don't do it that often because our, our guiding principle has been, we need to get to the next one. We want to talk to the next author. And there's so many authors who need exposure, want exposure. So, you know, we kind of marinate in the, the, the really big ones for a little bit. Uh, but really at the, at the end of it, I'm just as excited talking to an indie author like myself as I am talking to Richard Russo. Yeah, you recently interviewed the author of The Prophets as well. Yeah, that was like—I oh mean—that's been one of the big books of the year. Yeah, what a talk about another inspiring soul. He—he's headed on that Min Jin Lee path where you know his his whole mindset, his worldview, uh, and the book is beautifully written. Uh, man, Robert Jones Jr.—he has got one hell of a future in front of him. It's going to be a lot of fun to see what he does next. 
Yeah. So you mentioned writing playlists and I love that. So I put together a playlist for each book that I'm writing, songs that make me think of certain themes, songs that made me maybe apply to a certain scene in the novel. And it's so funny how a writing playlist really crystallizes for you what your book is about because I'm busy working on something new now and I put together this whole playlist. And when I looked at the playlist, I was like, oh my God, this book is like a feminist manifesto. This book is like about taking down the patriarchy because every single song on this playlist is like an angry woman yelling about something, which I absolutely love. So for the listeners out there, I often say to my students make a vision board have a vision board of things in your novel whether it's the way characters look whether it's where settings are maybe they wear a special outfit or maybe they get a ring or maybe it's a locket or you know anything that when you're sitting there staring down the blank page you have something super visual that's going to kickstart all of that for you and in the same way the writer's playlist, I feel just adds a whole other element to that so that you kind of sit down before you begin writing and you listen to one or two songs according to the kind of scene you're about to write. Uh, and that can really, really fire up the senses as well, because there's nothing like a song to really take you to a, a time and place. It's like smell, you know, and I always say to my students, use your senses and evoke the reader's senses in everything you write as well. On the rest of our episode, Daniel, I would like to ask you what your biggest takeaways have been either about the creative writing process, about writing, or just about books that really shine? Because you having spoken to so many authors, what are the things that have really stood out to you in terms of those interviews? There are so so many pieces of advice that we've gotten. I mean, every episode that we've had, we've we've done like a pull quote list and it's, it's a mile long at this point. Uh, but there are some through lines that I went through today. And the first one, and it, it tends to be the one that gets said the most. Uh, and it's totally true. And uh, people say it a lot because it's totally valid. Uh, just be patient. This business is tough. It doesn't care at times. There's no rhyme or reason to it. You know, if you stick to your stories, stick to your voice, uh, you know, good things will happen. It just, it, it requires just so much patience, more patience than I think sitting down and writing and, you know, finishing something, you know, you, you also need kind of that level of diligence too, but there's a patience kind of overall, you know, you may not be writing as many words as you want, or you don't want, you're not landing the publishers you want, you know, everything will happen. You know, the writer's journey, it's different for everyone and perseverance goes a long way. So, you know, as long as you're, you're patient with yourself, uh, that's kind of the key. Uh, and leading from that, and this is something that I struggle with a lot, your process is your process. For me, I have a day job. I just moved into a house. You know, I have responsibilities. Uh, and if you're like me, if you're writing in a notebook between the cracks of the day and you're not writing thousands of words a day, that's all right. That's your process. That's just what it is. And every writer is different. Every life is different. And given this market, given the world that we're living in, 
so really so few writers are able to have the process that they want even some of the legends out there i'm sure struggle with this too or people who have bestsellers it's like all right my process is i wake up at 5 a.m and then i have to go to my job and then i edit at night or whatever it is so if you're getting down about your process don't there are just so many larger battles out there and whatever your process is as long as you're being creative and you're getting words down it'll happen if you stick to it even on that i find that you don't even have to be getting words down to be creative. So I'll go through periods of time where I'm writing like crazy and I'm possessed and I will write 5,000 words in a day. And then I'll go a month where I barely write anything. But what I'm doing is every time I'm walking, I'm working through the plot. I'm finding loopholes. I'm trying to figure out character motivation. And then even things like reading other books and watching television. You know, my husband freaks out when I'm in the height of my creative process, because we'll be watching TV that's got nothing to do with any book that I'm working on. And some character will say something something and it'll just spark something in my head. And then I'm like, pause, and I've got to go and scribble a whole bunch of things down. So I feel like while we're out and while we're living and while we're out in the world, you know, that really feeds our creativity as well. So you don't even always have to be writing. There are different ways to be to be creative. Totally. Yeah. And as a writer, everything is input. You're walking down the sidewalk, you know, you, you're people walking down the street toward you, the conversations you're picking up. This is obviously in a normal world when there's a ton of people out, but yeah, it's just, yeah. And reading the same thing, you know, there's sometimes writers like, you know, I'm reading, but I'm not writing, you know, you're doing something related to your craft and the reading part is super important. And every writer we've ever had on has been a big reader and you have to be, if you're not, you are in the wrong business. Uh, and part of it is just, you, you know, supporting other authors, I think is an important part about being a writer. If you're not plugging into a community, which I will get to in a second, then, you know, you're not, you're not doing your job well. And you're, you're not, even if you're a great writer, you're never going to progress from where you are without a community and somewhat related to the process and, you know, be patient part, Gabrielle Garcia, whose debut of women and salt, which you would love by the way, uh, was an instant bestseller. And she was recently on the show and she was talking about struggling writing during the pandemic. And she said something that was totally beautiful. That was give yourself some great race. Writing is hard work. It's uh, It can be drudgery at times, even when you're enjoying it, even when you're in that mindset, you know, just the physical act of typing and keeping your eyes on the screen is hard. And then you add your your own life to it and it's, it's an even harder process. So you can find a lot of good stuff in that dynamic, whatever that is your relationship with the world and your writing. Uh, it's hard, but it's meant to be hard. It's meant to like weed out the people who aren't going to persevere through it. And if you give yourself a break and step back and realize that uh, you're going to be much better off. I love um, that. Yeah. Yeah. I can't take credit for it. I added to it, but uh, the, the guiding principles there. And uh, you know, we, we say every episode, uh, keep writing. That's kind of our, our mantra. And we've been adding uh, keep fighting lately for a variety of reasons, but keep going. Like I said, the writers who are out there aren't necessarily the best writers, but the writers who persevered through it and didn't want to say, didn't want to take no for an answer and, you know, have three novels in a drawer that don't see the light of day, but their fourth one got published. So, you know, I, I've fallen into it. It's the easiest thing to do to just give up 
stop writing, listening to people like, oh, you should get a real job or you should uh, have a real profession and and all of that. And you can certainly get in your head. And like I, like I said, there is literally nothing easier than to stop writing. I could walk away from it right now and the world probably wouldn't change. My world would change immensely. Like I would have a big gaping hole there. Uh, so yeah, just keep going and uh, good things will happen. And uh, talking about community, and this is where I'm going to tie in your podcast here. This is what Writer's Bone is all about. Just find your community. It's out there. It may not be your podcast. It may not be my podcast. You know, we've been trying to foster this community of writers since we started. And it's not, we were trying to prove that it's not, it's not just one of us. It's not just two of us. It's not just our local writer scene, which we love and adore. It's a, it's a national global thing. It's a global community. And we want to be that place where writers can come, they can air out whatever they want to air out, promote their work in a safe place and just keep branching out this community. But you're not going to find it if you're all alone in your room and you're just focusing on only social media or whatever. You know, when the world opens back up, go to book events. Authors, one, will love you because uh, <laughs> they love filling out seats, but you find other writers there. You know, when we started going to more local events, we started getting plugged into all the writerly organizations in Boston and they're constantly sending us authors, sending us inspiration, sending us work and uh, making our work better. So yeah, there's a community out there for you. And in some of the courses that I'm offering now, I am putting together writing groups because that's incredibly important as well. So besides the emotional support, it's important to have people who are on the same journey as you, who are pursuing the same level of creative skill. I won't say perfection because you can never attain perfection, but they are wanting to improve as much as as you are. And so to reach out to other writers, get feedback on your work and then, you know, cry on their shoulders when things haven't worked out perhaps the way you want, or if you didn't get chosen for some contest you submitted to, that's, that's super important as well. And I remember listening to your podcast in 2017, round about when my book came out and I listened to the interview you did with Rachel Kong, who wrote Goodbye Vitamin. And based on that interview, I then went and read the book and absolutely that book has become like one of my top 10 of all time. And I am now quietly, I won't say stalking Rachel on social media. <laughs> I'm sliding into her uh, DMs to ask if she will come on the show and, and be interviewed. So it is amazing how you will listen to somebody being interviewed and just connect with them, connect with their work, read their work, love it even more and, and want to reach out to them in some creative capacity down the line as well. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's been wonderful chatting with you. I've loved all of that advice. For the rest of you, if you haven't been listening to The Writer's Bone, why not? Go back, find it. There are so many amazing, amazing episodes. Look at that uh, backlist of all the podcasts and, and give it a listen. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, 
and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. 
If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.